good evening and welcome, my dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate, author of Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, and Walking in Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth, both books that teach, among other things, diversity through the many faces of the sacred feminine. Her on the uh, on the show we have here on the show we have conversations that might foster a new normal, a better quality of life for most of us as we strive to create a world free of oppression, domination, inequality, and war. A world where we all value each other and Mother Earth. Well, opening the show tonight uh, was just a little snippet uh, you don't uh, hear too often. It was from Diva Haley's. Sacred Alchemy CD, and the cut was Love, Lover, Beloved, uh, chosen as the opening music with an eye toward tonight's topic. Um, Kinda, peripherally. Sex, Sorcery, and Spirit, The Secrets of Erotic Magic with Jason Miller. And we will get to that in just a minute. After our chat, I'll be sharing part two of the article by Trista Hendren from her Girl God blog titled Money and the Elephant in the Living Room. Last week in part one, we discussed the money of patriarchy, and tonight we conclude the article about the lack of money to promote feminism and the alternatives to patriarchy. But first, uh, in honor of uh, Women's History Month, uh, did you know that Tuesday was uh, Gloria Steinem's birthday? Yep, uh, it sure was, and um, you can find out uh, more about all the contributions of of Gloria uh, by going to um, the Women's Media Center, which she, in 2005, co-founded with Jane Fonda and Robert, uh, Robin Morgan. Um, last year, Gloria told the New York Times how important media is to her personally when she said, quote, it's hard to think of anything except air, food, and water that's more important than the media. I've spent most of my life working in the media. That has made me hyper-aware of how it creates for us the idea of normal, whether or not the normal is accurate, Uh, especially for groups that have been on the periphery for whatever reason. If we can't see it, we can't be it, unquote. So, happy birthday uh, to Gloria Steinem. And uh, also, um, have you heard of uh, Emmy Nother? So, uh, I hadn't heard of Emmy Nother, but I think during Women's History Month, so we're hearing about uh, a lot of women in history who maybe got swept beneath the rug. So, Emmy Nother was born in 1882, and uh, she was here on this earth till 1935. She was a mathematician. Her name was actually Amelie Emmy Nother, and she was a pioneer of abstract algebra. She was also a trailblazer who refused to accept that women should not join the pursuit of knowledge. I like that phrase. She was a trailblazer who refused to accept that women should not join the pursuit of knowledge. When Nazi Germany, uh, when Germany's Nazi government uh, hounded her out of academia, she taught in secret. And today, her theorem underpins much of modern physics. So uh, there's uh, there's somebody for the history books uh, for women, because as we know, there is a dearth of women's history, and we're reminded of it every Women's uh, History Month. 
And uh, two dates on your calendar that uh, you want to mark. Uh, March 29th, uh, the HBO special Going Clear is coming on. Uh, It's about breaking the cone of silence about Scientology. For decades, uh, the controversial church has been using intimidation and threats to keep its secrets. But as you know, we're living in a time of transparency now, or so all the astrologers say, and they seem to be right. And everyone's secrets are coming uh, out into the light and coming under scrutiny. So set your recorder for March 29th. And also, uh, April 4th, Uh, is the blood moon. And uh, what do I have here to say about it? There will be a total eclipse of the moon. Uh, When this happens, the moon will turn a blood red. It's expected that the moon will be red for about an hour. Blood moons in history have always been a great omen of a big change or event about to happen. And again, that's what all the astrologers are talking to us about. But I have to say, whenever I've seen a blood moon, it really didn't look that red to me. It kind of maybe sort of looked barely rusty. Anyhow, I, you know, I want to see it red like you see on television in the vampire movies when it just really turns red. But it doesn't. Anyway, uh, mark the calendar uh, if that's the sort of thing you're interested in, April 4th. And I also want to thank Dorma for sending along two articles uh, you might uh, want to find on my Karen Tate Facebook page. You might have to scroll down a bit because it's been a busy day and there's been lots uh, I felt I wanted to post. But uh, trust me, they're there. Scroll down a bit to find them. I posted them a couple days ago. Uh, But they're titled, number one, Plants Communicate Using an Internet of Fungus. I thought that was interesting. Sort of reminded me of Avatar just a little bit, you know, with their heavy interconnection uh, with nature theme. And you can also probably find it on timewheel.net. That's where it was originally posted if you can't find it on my Facebook page, timewheel.net. Plants communicate using an Internet of Fungus. And the second article um, was on riseearth.com, and it was about an ancient underground labyrinth was discovered in Egypt that contains 3,000 rooms with hieroglyphics. Hmm. thought that was all very interesting stuff, so I wanted to share with you. Uh, but okay, uh, that's it for now. Uh, stay with me um, after I'm finished my interview with Jason. Uh, But let me tell you a little bit about him by way of his bio, and then we will start what I believe uh, is going to be an interesting chat tonight. Uh, Jason uh, is the author of Protection and Reversal Magic, The Sorcerer's Secrets, and Financial Sorcery. He also runs the Strategic Sorcery Training Course and Strategic Sorcery Blog. He lives with his wife and children in New Jersey, Pine Barrens, where he practices and teaches magic. And his popular blog can be found at strategicsorcery.net backslash blog. But he's got an interesting background. When Jason was five, he, he says he had one of those weird experiences, the kind that feels like a glimpse behind the curtain of a play, the rigging and boards behind the set. He was never able to shake that feeling that there was more to our minds and our lives than we were being taught. Then later on, as a teenager, he started trying to peek behind that veil again and studied everything he could on magic, mysticism, and the occult. And while he lived in, you know, suburbia, New York, um, he made contact with a ceremonial magician, a root worker, a witch, a tantric lama, all of that before he was 21. 
Uh, and he found those experiences and glimpse, glimpses behind the veil, uh, you know, they became useful to him, and they helped him uh, make a better life and a better mind. And, you know, one thing sort of complemented the other. He also studied uh, high ceremonial magic and the folk magic techniques of root work and witchcraft. And uh, as he says in his words, each approach strengthened, strengthened the other and created a sort of style of sorcery that he felt could be streamlined for the modern world. And he found it effective, too. So that's what he's been writing about in his books. Um, but wanting to plunge deeper still, he did uh, what all his childhood mystical heroes, like Dr. Strange Mandrake, The Shadow, and Dr. Doom did. He said he moved to the Himalayas. It was in Nepal that he underwent the initiations he would need to do sorcery the way that he knew it could be done, a practice that integrates the very best training for developing the body, mind, and spirit with occult secrets of both the East and West. Very interesting, Jason. I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that, that uh, the Himalayas held the secret. Well, you know, that is, um, <clears throat> it was closed off for from from foreigners for so so long that uh it was sort of placed on a pedestal and 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 mystified so if you think about uh blavatsky and theosophy you know she felt the secret chiefs resided in tibet and um the legend of shangri-la and so on all this revolved around uh the mysteries of the himalayas these hard to reach uh, places that were known for their magic, and and now of course with the Chinese invasion, everything uh, has been blown open, and and you you know lamas now are famous and travel the world giving teachings that were formerly secret, but uh, it is the case that you know they put for the last 1,200 years as much effort into magic and mister, uh, mysticism as we have into technology and, uh, and, and business. So, well, let's talk uh, about that a little bit. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, sort of a peripheral to, to all of this. How long did you spend there, and how did you get doors to open to you? Well, I was only in Nepal for a few months in between uh, 99 and 2000. But before that, I had done quite a bit of study here uh, in the U.S. at, at Dharma centers that lamas would come by. Uh, and I had also the good fortune to be friends with the first Westerner ever to be ordained as a Nakba. His name is John Reynolds. He goes by the name of Lama Vajranatha. And I met him just after I graduated high school. Uh, so I had a connection before I even started uh, looking at, at Himalayan magic and Tibetan Buddhism very seriously. So when I did, it was very... Uh, very easy to have those doors open for me and have someone to make introductions and, and uh, you know, someone to uh, give me teachings and, and commentary on other things that I had learned. So I owe him a big debt. So Tibetan Buddhism is part of the the secrets to magic then? It, it, did I deduce that? or? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, well, everyone does magic. Everyone does. 
you know, Catholicism is, is, is part of magic. Every, everyone does magic. They may not call it magic, uh, but it's magic. You know, when, when you've got, well, actually most of the Western mystery tradition is, is written by Catholics for Catholics. You know, the famous grimoires like the Key of Solomon and so on, these are written largely by and for Catholic priests or people that have at least taken minor holy orders. And so, yeah, in, in the case of Tibetan Buddhism, absolutely. The, uh, there's enormous uh, amounts of, of magic and, and sorcery, both in terms of uh, the magic of spiritual evolution and the magic of practical sorcery that affects people's minds and events and things like that. Well, and and I guess, too, you know, the key here is, and uh, you know, I, I think magic is a big subject. You know, I think the definition is really probably important, you know, because maybe magic to one person isn't um, magic to another, you know. Um, I, what comes to mind is um, comparing, you know, when pagans do, uh, you know, say a, a, a spell, and, uh, you know, they burn something in a cauldron to banish it. Uh, it's interesting um, because, you know, I knew of a Christian group who sort of did the same thing. You know, what they were burning in the cauldron was, you know, the name of a woman that one of their friends, uh, you know, his husband was having an affair with. You know, they wanted that affair to... Uh, you know, to die and go away. So they, you know, took the woman's name, put it on paper, burned it in a cauldron. I mean, and pagans do that all the time. You know, they want to burn away that which no longer serves us in our life kind of a thing. But those Christians didn't think they were doing magic. I'm sure they thought they were praying to God. Well, and that, and they were. But it's, it is still magic. You know, I mean, I can go to the church around the corner from me, and uh, they have a sell-your-house kit. You know, you, you buy the kit. It has a little statue of St. Joseph. And, <laughs> uh, you know, if you're Italian, you do it the old way. You bury it upside da- him upside down in the yard and tell him you're not going to dig him up again until the house sells. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you do it the, the sort of the nice way, the, the way that lets it be sold in, in the, the church gift shop is, you know, you place him in the back and you do these uh you know prayers and light a candle and so on i mean it, catholicism is full of, right uh, right i have heard about that one the saint joseph right. one um now the trick is getting enough money for your house you could probably always sell it but will you get enough money for it um well so, yeah that's that's the key so um so how how then i guess are you defining magic are we t- are we talking about sympathetic magic or are we talking about something else um well you know magic is one of those things that uh i forget who said it but it's a little like pornography it's it's hard to define exactly but i know it when i see it mm-hmm. um so, you know, magic to me is the art of using uh, unseen forces or forces that are not widely recognized to uh, make change. And this change is either in the inner world or the outer world. Uh, I would argue that, that magic that is aimed at purely the inner world is, is esoteric, 
magic and, and, and or or mysticism, and that sorcery is you know a combination of the bo- of the two. That, Why don't that, you give examples what you mean by that? The uh, inner and the outer world kind of magic. Well, you know, with the inner world, there there's certainly magic to affect your own mind, your own uh, spiritual growth, your own uh, dispositions, your spiritual evolution, your uh, the way you think about things, your own you know needing to overcome uh, obstacles of the mind and obsessions of the mind, or even distractions of the mind and things like this, and and okay. so. Magic can be aimed at that, just like you said. You know, you can burn off certain things and, and, and mm-hmm. anoint yourself in certain ways. And then outwardly, really, what we're talking about are the affecting of the influencing of events and the influencing of other people's minds. Okay. And really, pretty much all external magic boils down to this kind of influence. Okay. Either influencing events or minds that are not uh, your own. Well, I know the Greeks. You know that I, I think it was the Greeks. You know they, um, you know, often looked at the deities as maybe cosmic forces or cosmic energies. Like I know, for instance, Aphrodite was looked upon as uh, influence. You know, Hermes was communications. You know, they weren't necessarily. Uh, you know, for some people, it, they weren't really these personified beings that, you know, so many of us maybe, you know, actually do pray to, like a Jesus or an Isis or something like that. Um, well, do you think when we're doing magic, we are affecting cosmic forces, or do you think we are praying to a deity that can maybe exercise influence in our life? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> okay. Uh, mediating. I, I prefer to think of it as mediating those forces. These these forces are all around. So the magician steps in and, and actively mediates the influence. But you know, in the case of of for instance the the, the Greek gods, sure they they were definitely uh, representative of these cosmic forces, but they also were viewed as these imminent very, in many cases, carnal personalities. Mm-hmm. And just like human beings, there we have the, this very base level, you know, this sort of id that always wants to be fed, and then we have this super ego that, that is uh, higher and above that, and then it would be argued that we have higher selves uh, beyond that. And so the gods need not be different. So... There is a certain level to where Zeus is, you know, the cosmic uh, embodiment of the sky and storms and expansion and 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 uh, the the sort of father figure uh, genetrix of, of of other gods. And then there's, you know, a more imminent uh, view of Zeus where he sort of, you know, screws everything in sight. <laughs> and you know, uh, Greek mythology is uh, desperately in need of you know, law and order special victims unit handle <laughs> so true. those so kinds true. of things. Well, um, you, so, but so both of those really are true from the position of the magician. Okay, okay. Um, 
Well, and, and you know, we talked a little bit about this before, and and we are going to get into the sex, sorcery, and spirit, but I want to try to lay some foundations. You know, we we talked a little bit before we went on the air about the fact that, you know, so much of our pagan community, uh, even though they delve into all of this, so few have seemed to master it. You know, there's there's this poverty, you know, there's this lack of success, there's this you know, uh, this constant struggle and challenge and, you know, and then maybe that breeds pettiness and competition and, you know, that sort of ugliness that, you know, comes in the community. I mean, do you, or are they, what are they doing wrong? You know, why are they, why is their magic not working? Well, there's a number of different reasons. Um, Most of them, I mean, I, I, there's, there's really two ways to attack that question. The first is the magic tech, and then the second is what they're using it for. Now, the magic tech in the understanding of magic, of, of using magical links, uh, could be better understood by, by most pagans and, and, and most witches and things like that. Um, so well, what do you mean by magical links, just to make sure we're on well, the same page? Well, literally, you know, getting your hands dirty, not just, you know, if you're going out for a job or a promotion, not just sort of burning a candle and asking the gods to, uh, you know, get you this promotion so long as it harms no other person and, and doesn't inconvenience anyone and, this, you know, everyone when using magic in the pagan community has like this extra level of morality, it seems, that they don't ordinarily apply to other areas of their life. And in a way, you can actually magic your way right out of the job. Because, of course, if you're going to get promoted, there are three people that are not going to get that promotion. So if you're asking the gods not to harm anyone else in any way, then you're really asking not to get that promotion. <laughs> or the job, for that matter, or, or, because if or, you or get hired, job, somebody else isn't. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. So there is this refusal to accept like that the world is just a, a dirty place where in any given situation, people win, people lose, and sometimes you're choosing between bad choices, and sometimes you're just choosing to win. Mm-hmm. at what you're aiming at. Right. And the rules, you know, the ethics to me behind magic are not significantly different than the ethics of anything else. So I think it would be hard to find a person that would, would say it's immoral to go out for a promotion for fear that someone else wouldn't get it. So therefore it's not immoral to do magic to get that promotion. Makes um, sense. So, you know... That's one level of it. But the other level is that people are aiming their magic at sort of not very strategic things. And this is really where my my teaching niche comes in, thus strategic sorcery being the name of my course. You know, people will do these uh, spells for themselves when their livelihood is threatened, and usually only when it's threatened. 
So, you know, they're going along fine, and, and then all of a sudden they might lose their job. So they're frantically doing magic to prevent themselves from losing a job or to find another job or, or, or you know, basically to keep the status quo when really they should be working at magic to enhance their career all along. Mm-hmm. They should be... Uh, you know, thinking of, uh, in terms of what success really means, what financial stability really means. You know, right. speaking of money, I talk to people all the time, and the moment they get their their basic bills paid, they stop thinking about money. Yeah, and, and they might, you might, they might say, "Oh boy, you know, it sure would be nice to make six figures or something like that." But that that they talk about it like it's a pipe dream that could never happen. Mm-hmm. Instead of working to- with, towards it with magic and mundane methods together, right? Um, and you know, stability financially, me to me means that you have your bills covered, but you also have money saved for when emergencies happen. Because whether you're a a great sorcerer or not, emergencies happen. It's life. It's it's right. you know, it it things happen that you have money set aside for retirement. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, people are living longer and longer. It should scare the crap out of people that they might, you know, if they're 30 years old now and thinking how old they are, they could potentially be living a whole other 30 years after they are too frail to work. Right. Right. It, you know what I mean? Like things yeah, like yeah. that should be factoring into their "Am I okay?" idea. <laughs> no, no, I, I get that. Well, and you know, it reminds me of some Kabbalah classes that I took. You know, they always uh, pushed you to desire more, and it almost felt, you know, bordered on greed to me a little bit. You know, uh, because it's, you know, you could say, well, when is enough enough? But you know, their whole thing was the more you have, the more you can also give. Um, but you know, but don't you think there's also something about you know treating kind of deity as an ATM machine, you know that you know constantly wanting something, or are you also saying that there should be reciprocity, um, you know that yeah you can you know don't just go you know and do your spell work and do your prayers when you're desperately in need, you know do it all along. And, but do you think that's important that there be reciprocity? You know, the give and the take, the appreciation, the sacrifices, you know, things like that uh, in exchange for a good life. You know, for the well, blessings absolutely. of yeah, absolutely. You know, so many people talk uh, about how people who have money mismanage it and and let it rule them. Um, but there's a responsibility that comes with having money. So my answer is put your money where your mouth is. You know, get some money to actually make a difference and use it well. Mm-hmm. You know, show the, you know, marry your spirituality and your finances together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all the time people come to me, I mean, people... That honestly, I mean, people that don't have a pot to piss in talk to me about spells, and they're like, "But I want you to know, I'm not being greedy. I'm, I'm, I, I just, you know, I need this amount of money to, to, you know, just pay these medical bills or, or, or something like that." 
And it's just like nobody thinks that you're greedy. You you need <laughs> like you need to live. You need to live. Look around you. Right. You know. Right. So you know you can thank the gods by by giving them offerings. Um, you know this is what what church going people they, their tithe is about. I have never ever ever met someone who tithed to their church, regardless of what denomination it was, that did not tell me instantly that it was actually a financial benefit for them, that they felt they were rewarded for their giving. And it doesn't have to be to a church. It could be to a charity. It could be, you know. So absolutely, you, you, you know, you have to achieve a real financial stability, and then you have the opportunity to use that money well. It's not greedy. It's not, it's not using the gods as an ATM. To me, using the gods as the ATM is constantly um, gimme, gimme, going gimme. through the same cycles of financial chaos and going, oh, I'm in trouble again. You know, could, could you hit me up? <laughs> <laughs> but but ask but always asking for something. It, well, to me, it's always you know you you want to you want to get something, but you never give anything. Well, see, there's also the matter of a plan. You know, it's much better to go to uh, the angel Tzadkiel, and instead of saying I need ten thousand dollars, to say I have this plan for. A second for you know a home business that I can work from home after I fin you know after in addition to my day job. Please support me in this. Please bring me customers and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So you're not really asking for money. You're asking for help and and success. And then right. this is this is what I call in my system macro enchantment. Okay. Uh, a, a a a spell over the whole operation. And then there's micro-enchantment as well, meaning, okay, my business needs to uh, get set up with taxes and an LLC, or it needs to get a decent, if it's a brick-and-mortar business, I need to, you know, grease the wheels in the town to get the permits that I need. Or if it's something that is from home but with physical supplies, I need to find a you know, a good supplier with low overhead, or I need a good web design. So you do these micro-enchantments to help with each little stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and at no point are you treating the gods as an ATM, because you're doing your work, and then you're thanking them through your regular rituals and giving of offerings and, and things like this. So there, it's, it's a reciprocity. Yeah, uh, but but you know I think I found that most uh, well well I shouldn't say most but a lot of the pagans I know they only are good about going to try to get something they sort of forget the reciprocity that it's a two way street. You well, know, there that, that, I agree with you. You know the you know the entire concept of offerings to the gods is something that has until very recently been entirely absent from both ceremonial magic and the witchcraft community. Um, It's been sort of this, you know, probably influenced from from, uh, the Christian grimoire tradition, which is basically, by the name of gods, you shall do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas now that people are getting exposure, 
to both African traditional religions, where offerings play an enormous role, and in Eastern traditions like Tibetan Buddhism, where again, offerings play an enormous role, uh, people are beginning to see that, that whether you are talking to a god, a spirit, a nature spirit, an ancestor, or even a demon, you get further by saying, this is an offering, you know, please help me out as I'm helping you out, and, you know, uh, well, you know, I, I'm thinking, a relationship you know, here. In, in ancient times, you know, they would bring a pig to Demeter and Persephone rituals. You know, they would sacrifice a bull at Artemis rituals. Um, you know, they would, uh, Isis, you know, Egyptians, you know, they would burn incense and fire and milk and honey and all of these different things. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, but I think in our modern times, you know, we've, I mean, it's not like we're going to, you know, make an animal sacrifice. You know, of course we do, you know, do incense and food and flowers and things like that. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I find that tithing is a, is a um, thing that the pagan community seems to have a lot of trouble with. And I don't know if it's because we're sort of anti-establishment to begin with. You know, so we distrust giving to an institution, so to speak. Um, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, you know, first of all, in, in the pagan community, we're talking about a community of clergy. So if, it, if it's a matter of tithing to the church, then, you know, who are you tithing to? Uh, you know, your coven, I suppose. With, and, and when there are organizations then, yeah, you know, any organization takes money to run. I'm mm -hmm. good friends with a lot of people in the Assembly of the Sacred Wheel, which is a, a huge network of, of uh, covens all up and down the East Coast. And they have a, you know, a very impressive, um, uh, very impressive group. They're, they have a physical uh, library that they're opening that they, you know, uh, have been working there is off to, to fund. Mm -hmm. um, so there are people out there that really have it together. But, you know, in the case of tithing, then you, you make donations in the names of the gods. Um, there are people, obviously, who, who, you know, still do the animal sacrifice. And, you know, I'm a meat eater myself, so as long as it's done somewhat humanely, I can't really say anything. Um, I think that if you don't grow up in sort of a rural farm area where that's the norm, then it can become this sort of like overly exotic gore fest um, if you're not used to that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. People that, that do animal sacrifice as part of their tradition, it's the norm. It's, it's no big deal. Like sacrificing a chicken to uh, Kali in Nepal is no different than killing the chicken before you're going to eat it. Yeah. So, yeah, because uh, it's the know, deity that's eating it rather than you. Well, actually both. I mean, they usually yeah. spray the idols in Dakshin Kali, and then they give it the carcass back to you, and there's little barbecue picks all around it, and everybody has the Kali picnic on, on a Saturday. Yeah, like Prasad. Yeah. yeah, it's very nice. I've uh, You know, I've been there. Um, so... 
you know, the, but obviously this isn't the kind of thing that can happen in, in suburban backyards. And, and, and yeah, Coven isn't going to do that in their backyard. You know, I don't think it's necessary or even desirable to reinstitute that kind of thing. Yeah, you, know, you can do other things. Lots of Hecate worshippers can't pull off sacrificing a hundred oxen in their backyard. <laughs> they can visualize well, it Tibetan style, but um, <laughs> well, not, and, and uh, you know, going back to the lack of success, do you think it might also have to do with they want to just work on the magical realm? You know, they want to just light the candle but not send out the resumes? Oh, God, I can't tell you. I I mean, honestly, just yesterday, uh, someone who was complaining that they had tried everything, done everything, hit up every demon, spirit, God to find a job, but it's just not turning around for them. And I just wrote them. I said, send me your resume. And, And what came in front of me was this resume that looked like the first draft of a resume written by a 14-year-old. Um, it was there was no formatting. There was no like most of the information was not there. It contained information that didn't make any sense. And and it I just wrote them back. I said there is no magic in the world that would get you hired with this resume. Yeah. There is no demon strong enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, and, and, yeah, there is. There's this lack of, you know, I want six figures dropped in my lap, but I don't want to start a business and yeah. deal with all that. And, there, you know, some of it gets down to 60s counterculture. You know, the, the neo-pagan movement grew out, or I should say grew large, during the hippie era. And materialism was seen as, as anti-spiritual. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it picked up some Christian ideas about simony and things like this. That You, you know, I think right now there's a debate raging. Uh, you, we, there was even covered on Huffington Post about people paying for spells on Etsy and whether it's okay or not. Uh, because, you know, materialism and money get seen as this anti-spiritual thing. And I just... You know, it's not anti-spiritual. Yeah, I don't think it's so not. either. And if you have that view, then if you're a spiritual person, then money is never going to make sense to you, which is fine. It's great to, to view materialism as different than spirit if you're going to be serious about it. And to me, that means becoming a monk or a nun or a homeless wandering yogi where this is your path. Yeah. And well, or I can see where, the, where... You know, working at the local McDonald's or, or, or coffee shop complaining about the 1% is not taking anti-materialist spirituality seriously. Or, or the flip side of that, you know, the Koch brothers who have more money than God destroying democracy with their wealth, you know, or someone who, you know, is the CEO who makes a thousand times more than his workers and exploits them and doesn't want to give them benefits, you know, then, then I think the materialism maybe borders on sin. <laughs> it does, um, but see, that's the thing. If you avoid materialism as a spiritual person, then you're leaving the material world to non-spiritual people. 
mm. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you're saying that money has no place in, in, in spirituality and spiritual values, then you are leaving the world of finances and money, what essentially runs everything, to people that have no spiritual values or, or, or worth. Now, thankfully, I know a lot of people that are up near the 1% that, that really, I mean, give enormous amounts of, of money uh, to charity and to good works yeah. and, and are extremely concerned about the world and uh, are enraged at how low their own tax rate is. And yeah. it's not hard to find these people either. So yeah. they yeah. are there. But yeah. it's when, you know, when people complain, do something about it. Like yeah. either, you know, get in the game and show how it can be done right. Well, and don't you think, you know, you can sort of, uh, if you do, if you are one of these people who feels guilty about money, um, and, you know, materialism or whatever, you know, you're carrying that baggage, that could even be a block to your success, doing okay. your magic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know I was doing a consultation with someone who, again, you know, bounced, constantly unemployed, bouncing between uh, really low-paying jobs, and... You know, they said to me, they're like, well, you know, I, there are so many people suffering out there. I can't, what am I supposed to do? Like sit pretty in my six-figure job while, while there are people out there suffering? And my answer to him was, how are, is you not making enough money helping those people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you're looking at people that are, that are suffering greatly your suffering alongside of them is not doing them any benefit. Right, right, right. You're, you're, you know, if you were making that kind of money, then maybe you could help some people. Uh, exactly. It, you it, could hire some of them. Start a business right. and hire some of them. Exactly. Um, it's, it's an airplane scenario. You know, you put your own oxygen mask on and then you... First, yeah, exactly. Well, um, let's let's sort of shift away from uh, the money and get back over into mysticism and sex. Um, but but first, let, with a side trip to, back to Tibet, let me just ask you quickly before we get into the eroticism and uh, sex magic and stuff, um, what did that initiation in Nepal, what did that look like? Are you there? Uh-oh, something happened. Oh, I think he dropped... All right, well, we will hope that he is going to call back in. He probably accidentally disconnected himself. So we will give him a minute. Um, Maybe I'll go ahead and put a little music on. So stay with me, and uh, I'm sure he'll be back in just a sec. We'll go back over to him. 
Hi, Karen. Hey, Jason. You back with us? I am. I don't know what happened. I don't either. God, and we're, and I don't even think we're in Mercury retrograde, but that's okay. You're back. I just played a little music waiting for you. So I don't know if you heard the question. Um, I said before we get into the mysticism and the, and the erotic alchemy, um, I'm curious about in your bio, you said uh, in Nepal you end, uh, underwent the initiations you'd need to do sorcery. I'm wondering if you mean that metaphorically or in a practical um, way, what did that look like? Well, you know, all of the above. Um, I underwent a lot of different initiations, literal uh, tantric initiations and uh, training and some short retreats uh, where, you know, meditation was taking up the bulk of your day and, and rituals were taking up uh, the bulk of your day and and, and visiting um, you know power spots that were just hugely powerful and uh, you know living in the society where where you know this tantric magic was regularly practiced so uh, in a very real way um, I did receive you know catalysts and empowerments there. Uh, that enabled me to do sorcery the way I thought it should uh, and could be done. But there is also just a massive amount that I learned over there uh, that's applicable to the Western tradition as well. Um, And that's what happens. You know, people are getting involved in, for lack of a better word, you know, living... Uh, traditions, and I don't mean to say that neo-paganism is a dead tradition or anything like that, but from the standpoint of there being an entire culture revolving around it, where you know it's the norm to be a priest or or, or practitioner, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, you know, there are not uh, churches and, and priests of Hecate uh, with buildings around the corner for most people. Uh, it is not a living tradition in the way it was in ancient Greece. So living someplace where where this type of tantric um, magic and mysticism was the norm, it was the living tradition of the culture, was, was very enlightening um, and placed a lot of things into context that, that I then was able to apply to Western magic as well. And a lot of the the techniques, including the the sex magic techniques and and, uh, inner yogas and offering techniques and, uh, you know, uh, uh, how to relate to spirits and really everything. Okay. So, um, all right, so let's start at the beginning of this, you know, because I I have to admit I'll take responsibility. We kind of got a little sidetracked to begin with. You know, when you say erotic alchemy or sex magic, I mean, what are you talking about? Are you talking about channeling the energy that you conjure up during orgasm or something and being able to direct that? Or what what are we really talking about? Well, that is one aspect to it. I like to think of it in three different levels of work. And we can think about this uh, as in terms of what goes on during sex. So during sex, there's this um, 
you know, there is this energy that gets raised that people can feel in their body, you know, Mm -hmm. this energetic element. And, you know, I think that even people who um, are complete energetic dullards, people that, you know, would go to a yoga studio and and the teacher would be talking about prana and they would just be like, I have no idea what she's talking about. Or go to martial arts and they're like, you know, channel your key into this punch or your your chi in, in, in Tai Chi. And they just walk away like going, I... Chi, key, this is all like... Or Shakti, some people say Shakti. Right, yeah. You know, these people, I think, admit, if you if hard-pressed, that there's an energy in the body that activates during the sex act. They can feel it. They can feel it move. Um, and so there is this this ability to raise and channel energy in the sex act. And then there's the physical aspect of it. There is there is magic in the chemistry, in the fluids. I mean, this is what gives rise to other human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, so you could almost imagine, you know, prehistoric shaman and magician realizing that, you know, sex is what leads to more people. It is the act of creation itself. How can we channel this, um, you know, and harness it uh, for what for our goals. So, so you're there's talking that. about like using the ejaculatory fluids, you know, from the, uh, you know, like some women use their menstrual blood in rituals. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, one of uh, uh, one of the oldest layers of sex magic is you know the use of the the fluids uh, for enlightenment and for magic and and, and so on. Uh, and then there's also this psychic element to it. You know, during the orgasm, a, a great orgasm, the ego is lost. It's just shattered. This is why the French call it uh, the petite mort, the little death. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lose yourself. And it's in that moment that uh, you lose yourself and find yourself at the same time that, that you know, the Buddhists in particular would say, you know, you're not that far from Buddhahood. You need one good primordial experience to to take you there, and that is uh, the easiest one to access. So you have all, you know, these three sort of layers to it. So then it becomes a matter of technique if we're talking sex magic. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're, how do we make it you know, like the bionic man, stronger, better, hopefully not faster. Um, <laughs> you know, and specifically, how do we make it slower? How do we, <laughs> exactly, you know, how do we make it last you know, longer? Those, those few seconds are like, whoop. <laughs> well, you know, and, and this is this is one of the, the things, um, you know, in the book, one of the criticisms um that sex magic materials get overall is that it's it's so much of it largely historically has been written by and for men. Mm-hmm. And of course, being keenly aware of this as yet another straight man writing on the subject, um, I you know I had to ask myself, well, why is this? And and uh, you know the the over. By far the largest region, reason is is simply patriarchy. Is simply that you know 
men were running the show and viewed women's sexuality as scary and something that needed to be controlled. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's no there's no denying that in my mind. Uh, but there is another aspect to it that is that is technical, and that is that um, men are not as easily equipped uh, to use sex magic as women are. Men ejaculate all their fluid and get very tired after sex. Women do not. Mm-hmm. Um, men do, you know, generally speaking, climax much quicker than women do, by mm-hmm. and large. I'm not saying that, you know, there are not exceptions to the rule. Of course there are. Um and you know, by and large, women are are more able to engage in multiple orgasms and things like that than men are. Uh, so, you know, the tantras specifically say, especially in the case of Buddhist tantras, that that uh, you know, women might have an easier time than men will. And and mm-hmm. are in need, you know, they don't need a long dissertation on how to hold the fluid. <laughs> right. Well, and and also too, I'm thinking you're saying, you know, uh, going back to women, you know, because they don't ejaculate so quickly. When that desire is building in them, that that, and I'm calling it desire, that feeling, that energy that you talked about, that's what you're referring to. That they can use to direct it for their magic. Absolutely, absolutely. But that said, a lot of the techniques that men use are also techniques that women use. So, for instance, men learn, for lack of a better word, male kegels to be able to, you know, hold the fluid and control, you know, when they're going to ejaculate and if they release the fluid or hold the fluid in the body during orgasm. Um, but women sort of still need to know those muscle movements and breath movements and things like that to be able to concentrate energy in the same way. Because what you're doing is you're taking the downward flowing prana or the downward flowing shakti and you're moving it upwards. You're connecting the genitals to the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know the mistake comes in in thinking that these are instructions solely for men when, in fact, most of it is applicable to both sexes. Okay. So so let me ask you, I mean, let's just be specific about it. Um, how can you use sex magic to get a job or to find a lover? I mean, can you, like, just walk us through what the, what the act looks like? Sure, absolutely. Um, there's there's numerous ways. So so let's let I'll I'll do you one better. Rather than giving one way, I will give three different ways of increasing complexity. How about okay. that? Okay. Okay. So you know, way number one, you create a sigil, a a symbol symbolizing your desire. I need you know, a job doing X. And I I don't want to get into how exactly you create sigils because it's just, you know, people can look that kind of thing up online. It's everywhere. Uh, Gordon White 
who is a blogger at Runes, who by far has the best material on sigils that I've ever seen. Okay. So, you know, go to RuneSoup and, and look all that up. Um, but, you know, you create the sigil for your job, and when you are about to orgasm or when you are orgasming, you look at that sigil. You pour yourself into that sigil. You direct the energy and emotion and everything else into that sigil. Now, if you're working, um, you know, if you're operating solo, (laughs) then um, you can, you know, just have it in front of you if you're if you're using um, visual aids and you can draw the sigil on those aids or or have it right next to it. If you're working with a partner, then uh, you know I've always thought that that body paint is sort of a, a good and funky way to do this. Um, and basically, that's your your simplest operation right there. Uh, okay. Made famous probably by Grant Morrison and his Invisibles comic, which was going to be canceled. And then he asked in the letter column for his readership to basically do this, to orgasm while looking at this sigil that he enclosed in the letters column. And, uh, of course, the comic book got renewed and, and uh, you know, <laughs> okay. grew in popularity. So, you know, that that's sort of the basic level. But, you know, let's take it then to another level. Let's say that we want to invoke, uh, you know, the presence of gods in this. So let's let's say we've got two people and they, you know, let's say that they want to find a job for, we'll say the woman's out of work. Um, and so maybe the, the male uh, invokes Zeus or Mars, and the female invokes Aphrodite, and they they you know they get together and they do their own invocations in the corners of their bedroom, and they they call upon these deities, and then they meditate and unite, uh, ostensibly playing the roles of these deities, with the intent stated during the invocations that this is. You know, they are uniting and raising energy and asking for the blessings of these gods in order to obtain employment for, you know, so-and-so. And so in so other words, they, Jason, so let me just ask you real quick. So in other words, when they have the, when the sex act happens and they orgasm, it's almost as if they're feeding the deity. The deity it is. Supposed that the deity um, feels the, the energy. It is. And in fact... This is why in Tantra, this is all called completion stage. Uh, the invocation, the verbal invocation and the visualizations, etc., that would be generation stage. But the completion stage is because, again, you have that moment of orgasm where the ego is shattered. And if you've done an invocation and visualization and you've sort of uh, inflamed yourself in prayer, then what comes through in that moment but that presence? So the whole thing is an enormous um, offering and great right dedicated uh, to the gods and then to manifest this uh, this result. And, you know, so then you can take it to the third layer of complexity where people are 
not only doing this invocation, but maybe a chant that they are visualizing in their bodies that is passing between man and woman as they they are having sex. So this energy uh, that is that is building up to this purpose is passing from the mouth of the male into the mouth of the female and down through her central channel uh, into, you know, out of the, the sexual organs, passing into the sexual organs of the man, and, and you're building this ring of power between you. And then at the moment of orgasm, you let the fluids unite, and then you can take the fluids that are empowered with all this, uh, both divine and energetic and physical uh, substance, and anoint a talisman uh, with it. That that is then you know carried uh, by the person in need of jobs. So those are those are sort of three levels of complexity that one and, could operate sex magic at. And you talk about how to do this in your book, Sex, Sorcery, and Spirit. Oh yes, I give explicit rituals for that. <laughs> okay, very cool. You were the first one I have talked to about this who was actually willing to give specifics, and I thank you for that, rather than talking about it in theory or vague. So um, this was very cool. Thank you very much. Um, So now let me ask you, what if you don't have a partner? Can you do this solitary, you know? Oh, Um, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, You know, I have a whole chapter called Flying Solo. Uh, Now, obviously, there are some things you can't do. You can't you know, you can't um, unite God and goddess together or God and God or goddess or goddess and whatever your, uh, you know, your orientation is. Um, but you can certainly invoke and you can experience an orgasm by yourself and you can direct it by yourself and you can uh, anoint it with just your own seed or your own fluid uh, and, and use this um, this power, uh, uh, you know, uh, to your end. Yeah, absolutely. And um, now you, I, I think you also talk in your book about uh, lesbian and gay folks as well. Do Would their rights be different than straight people? Or I wouldn't think it would matter very much, would it? I you mean, know, my answer... Sex is sex, but my answer to that is um, it depends. It depends because, again, we're talking tech. I'm sorry, I I got a little fade out. Can you still hear me? Yeah, uh uh-huh, you're good. You're there. Okay, okay, yeah, okay, good. Um, Yeah, yeah. you know, on, on many levels it doesn't matter, and then on some levels it does matter. Uh, so, for instance, if we're talking about operations that use physical fluids, obviously, no matter what you visualize or or how you unite, the fluids between two men or two women or a man and a woman are all going to result in a different uh, combination. But here's the key. There are mysteries and magic to all three of those. And this is what people don't get. You don't want to paint it all with a, 
a single brush and just say, oh, it doesn't matter, it's all the same. And because that, in, it, in, it, in its own way, is its own kind of soft bigotry in, in, in a way that people are like, oh, I don't see black people or white people, I just see people. Sort of marginalized well, that, a bit. Right. It, it, you know, it, it marginalizes the experience that those people have. And and the the you know the ways that people really are different, and that they're experiencing something different, but equally valid, and 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 beautiful in a different way. So my answer is always: in some cases, it doesn't matter a lick because an orgasm is an orgasm is an orgasm, and as far as I'm concerned, polarities are not tied to. Uh, the gender you're born with, so I think that people uh, can can successfully run, you know, male or female energy without being born that way. Um, but I, I especially if they relate interiorly to to another. So I think you know when people are transgender, I don't see that as an obstacle at all to to doing magic as the gender that they most identify with, or even in between. Um, and, but, you know, I don't want to over-gloss that there are differences as well, wonderful differences that that need to be explored and written about at greater length. Now, again, me being a heterosexual male, not my place to take the lead on that. (laughs) Well, um, now I still want to ask you a few more things. I know we've sort of gone over the time. Um, Do you have, uh, can you stay with me a little bit longer? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I I am curious about um, a section in your book uh, about sex with the gods. Do you remember that section? I'm wondering if you do, if you can elaborate on it. And you're inappropriately touched by an angel, those two sections. <laughs> well, yeah, um, this is all, uh, you know, this is, this is the one section of the book where I didn't get into a lot of the how-to. Um, but I felt like it had to be in there because it is so important. The idea that people can have sexual relations with non-physical beings. Uh, This is old. This is an old idea. This is a biblical idea. This is Genesis 6. The angels uh, found the the daughters of men to be fair and came down and, you know, got busy with them and gave birth to a race of giants that eventually caused the world to be flooded. And, um, you know, there are, there are traditions of witchcraft that feel rooted in this story. Um, you know, Paul Hewson's Mastering Witchcraft, one of my early books that gave me my start, he, he, he plays on this heavily. Um, and so then there's, of course, you know, the, the legends of the incubi and the succubi, the demons that would come and, uh, you know, uh, sort of rape people in the middle of the night. And, uh, but also stories of elves and nature spirits that would kidnap people and, and uh, have their way with them. And then, of course, you know, there's one particularly famous example that gave birth to a rather large religion. Um, It's not explicit that God had sex with Mary, but a child was the result. So it, you know, you could argue that it counts. 
Um, so there is this idea that people can have sex with angels and spirits and demons, and it will bring them closer to those realms. And in the case of uh, the angels, I think in the in the section that I entitled "Inappropriately Touched by an Angel." Um, I was writing specifically about Ida Craddock, who, um, you know, lived uh, in in the 1800s and and was the victim of the terrible Comstock laws that basically uh, vilified women who wrote about sexuality and 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 you know I mean this drove her to her grave basically uh, because she did write so vividly and openly about it and and heroically I might add. Uh, about her encounters with her angel lover, Soph. And she gave, you know, basic outlines for how one would attract and and, and have an angelic lover. Um, you know... Interesting. It, well, you know, it when is, you hear stuff like that, you think people are crazy. <laughs> I'm sorry? I, I'm, when you hear stuff like that, I think most people probably think these folks are, are deluded or crazy. And some, I'm sure, are. <laughs> uh, you know, some, I, I, am, I am sure, are. Yet the idea is old, and the idea pervades every culture on the planet um, to one extent I, or another. So, I wonder if you're, if, if you're familiar with the woman Amseti. Um, um she was a British woman. She only passed away in, I think, the 1980s. She uh, she believes she was reincarnated from um, a, a, a girl of one of the Egyptian temples, and she was the lover of Seti. And uh, I know this all sounds crazy, and if you don't read Jonathan Cott's book, In Search of Amseti, I'm going to sound like, it, like I'm crazy and deluded. But um, Amseti had... She uh, she spent her entire life in Egypt. She worked for the Egyptian Antiquities Department. She knew all of the archaeologists like Wallace Budge and a lot of the others. They really believed that she was tapping into past life information to know the things she knew about ancient Egypt because there was no way for her to really know. But she spoke about that. She, she didn't go into any detail, but she claimed that uh, it, it, well, you know, as as Amseti in in contemporary times, that she would be visited by her uh, the pharaoh, you know, that used to be her lover in a past life, and he would come and visit her, you know, in contemporary times, and they, you know, could still have a relationship. And it also reminds me of uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Marguerite Rigoliozzo's work, but she spoke she she did her dissertation on women like Mary, but other women too, going back like um, uh, Alexander the Great's mother and other other women who she she had had you know set up this theory and backed it up in, in you know when she defended her dissertation uh telling you know she gathered up all of these facts that made it sound pretty believable that at one point in time certain women not all women by any stretch of the imagination but certain women who were trained in the temples could actually uh, become impregnated 
um, because somehow they were able to use light, uh, and it was also, the, I think, the essence of deity for, for parthenogenesis, to become pregnant on their own without a male. And it, it's a really interesting concept because the way she tells it, it sounds really believable, and like I said, that's what her dissertation was based on. So I'm, you know, I'm supporting what you're saying here, you know, and maybe these are other, you know, other examples of what you're talking about. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in pop culture, you can find, um, you know, for instance, the actress Lucy Liu. Uh, claimed to have had sex with uh, spirit uh, in Ghost. Kesha wrote a song about having uh, sex with a spirit that is supposedly uh, biographical. Um, so these things are not, um, you know, not that far out of the norm, okay. as people might think. Okay. So if somebody wanted to learn more about that, since you didn't go into it a whole lot, where would you refer them to? Um, you know, what's the best sources? I would start with Ida Craddock. Okay. She okay. wrote about it very well, um, and and her her heavenly bridegroom. That's where I would start. Okay. Um, and and honestly, the other place that I would start is. Uh, offerings in any book on spirit work in general. Um, Because what you're talking about can't be reduced to a ritual that you do uh, any more than, than, you know, finding and meeting a a successful, you know, a person that you um, physically uh, meet and, and, and unite with can be reduced to just a ritual. Uh, there might be a ritual involved of attraction, but you still have to go out and meet this person, and they and, and they have to meet you, and and uh, you you woo each other, and and uh, you know there is a relationship. It's a two way street. Right. Um, well, so well, you know, it, it almost sounds like it could be dangerous, steps. Jason. I mean, could it be? Oh, could it, it be, be a dangerous yeah. thing? Sure. Yeah. And, you know. It can be a dangerous thing, but this is, again, something that, uh, you know, you would hopefully be an experienced uh, practitioner before attempting something like this. Right, right, right. And, you know, all magic has danger to it. Right. Uh, my, My attitude is that, you know, driving is dangerous, too, but, you know, we we look at the dangers realistically and we take whatever precautions we can against it, realizing that no precaution is foolproof and that uh, we're probably going to get into an accident or two over the course of our life and we basically just hope that none of them will be fatal. Right, right. I, I but you. that the payoff of driving is worth is, is worth the risk and so magic is the same way. Um, there are people out there that want to sanitize it desperately to make it say that it's just completely safe and and everything else. And that just doesn't make sense. You know, anything real has danger. Yeah, I mean, uh, things things can get messy, you know, just like... uh, Real life dating is, is... dangerous. I would I would argue that real life dating is especially for women no no less dangerous 
Yeah, I mean, you don't know <laughs> that, you don't know who that guy is. He could be a serial killer, you know. Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's it's not a joke, but it you know, it's it's it, it's been, you know, seen as a as a uh, a cartoon, you know, the man walking away thinking, you know, I hope she gave me her real number and and blah, 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 and the woman walking away going, yeah, I hope he doesn't rape me and kill me. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, you know, this is this is a real, you know, real danger. So, yeah. anyway, yeah, like I said, there's danger to it, but not as much as, you know, alarmists might. So why do you think maybe sex magic has a reputation for being more dangerous than just regular magic? Is it just because of the taboos of sex, maybe? Well, there is that. Um, there is there is the taboos of sex. There are some people who still, even in the pagan community, unfortunately, still find it dirty and, 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 uh, you know, something that, uh, you know, is too powerful or potent to, to work with. Um, but you find people in the pagan community that are afraid to cast a circle, you know, for <laughs> yeah. fear of what it might do. So, uh, no one has more fear of magic than the pagan community, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe they are blocking their own magic. You know, well, yeah, getting coming full circle, yeah, absolutely. But um, you know, the other thing is, is that not a lot is has been spoken of about it that is really very plainly spoken, detailed instruction. Uh, that's not just sort of vague theory and and and. Um, and, and alchemically shielded uh, stuff that, you know, people still write about it like they're living in the Victorian era where people are going to, you know, collapse with the vapors at, at, at the idea of talking about sex openly. Right. And, uh, you know, we and live in the era of two girls, really one know cup. What... It's silly. Well, and it makes you wonder if they really know what they're talking about or they're just kind of you know, trying to, you know, put out a, bu- a book capitalizing on sex, you know, on the topic. You know, if you can't walk away and, and, and maybe do something after you've read it, then the book is a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, I agree. So um, so I think, um, you know, maybe my last question and then I'll, you know, let you share any closing thoughts. Um, uh, you know, I read the book Fifty Shades of Grey and um, I have to say, you know, and, and honestly, I'm sorry I didn't actually get to see the movie. I guess I'll catch it on Netflix. But I read, the, I read all three books and I thought, you know, there was, it was way too much hoopla about it, you know, uh, like it was this horrible thing. Um, and I think the people who were saying Fifty Shades of Grey was horrible, they hadn't actually read the books because they acted as if, oh, the woman is being oppressed, she's being abused. And it wasn't the case at all. Um, if you read the books, you realize that she was more in control than, than you know, than, than Christian Grey was. Um, and I don't know, I guess I just wonder about the, the BDSM of uh, of. of of sex magic does that you know are there you know would you use you know what are your thoughts caution um i mean what do you what do you think about that 
Well, you know, uh, I have a whole chapter on it. Uh, so obviously, I'm I'm enthusiastic about it. Um, I I I do believe that uh, it has uses um, and, and excellent ritual uses as well. You know, it, it's easy to see how uh, you can use uh, bondage and 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 uh, blindfolds to create sensory deprivation that would turn on the inner senses. Uh, and, and then there are, you know, all kinds of, of ways to enter altered states using pleasure, pain, and, and so on. And I write about all that. Um, you know, what I wanted to say about Fifty Shades is that uh, I agree with you uh, that it is not the monstrosity of a book that people make it out to be. And people confuse the idea that you know, people write about it and say, well, you know, this isn't how things are done in the BDSM community, and it's not. But it's not a manual for how to have sex. It's a novel. Right. <laughs> and, and people are like, you know, these are, these are emotionally damaged people, and people in the BDSM community are not necessarily emotionally damaged or, or, or even, you know, commonly so. And there again, I agree. But again, it's a novel. Most mm-hmm. characters in most novels are emotionally damaged. That's what makes interesting stories. True. <laughs> you True. Know? Um, and, and that, you know, people uh, on the consent issues and things like this, my, you know, I agree with you that she is largely uh, in control. I don't see the consent issues that, that people do see there. But, because I, I have read the first book, um, and but... Even if they weren't, even if the the uh, if it was as bad as they say, it's a novel. Um, consent laws get my full support wherever they are, and people need to know uh, that no means no, and that it is never the fault of the victim, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but these are fictional characters. It's mm-hmm. not the duty of a novel to present uh, how things should be done. It's the duty of a novel to present art that is sometimes a reflection of a fantasy. Mm-hmm. And the reality is is that 46% of women admit to having non-consensual sex as part of their sexual fantasy life. Now, well, look one at the can argue... romances. I mean, look, if oh, you God, were young... Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, the woman's always ravaged by the handsome pirate. It's the same right. thing. <laughs> and you know, I mean, you can look at look at um uh Gone with the Wind. You know, yeah. at the end, you know. So now you can argue that this very that the fact that so many women have this fantasy that that removes consent and thus allows them to fully uh, experience things without feeling like a slut or something like that is in fact a symptom of a sick slut shaming society, and I'm not going to disagree with you. Mm-hmm. But the reality is what the reality is, and at the point where we're arguing that people should not be allowed to have these fantasies, then I get very uncomfortable. And yeah. you know, I've met women on both sides of the issue, and and many women say that you know, I mean, part of feminism is in fact 
being able to be free to have such fantasies and not have people interpret it as something you want to really happen um, and and play things out however you damn well please. Yeah, you know? I, I was so, a little I was a little annoyed with some of the feminists on Facebook. You know, they didn't see it as you know the woman, the liberated woman who allows herself to indulge in fantasies. They could only see that. In, in their mind, you know, she was, you know, she was being dominated against her will, or she was being oppressed. Obviously, they right. hadn't read the book, you know. And I'm, well, you know, well, and I'm no. never for a, a woman being dominated or oppressed against her will. But you know, um, if there, yeah. if it's if it's you know if it's sex play, and you know, what's the big deal? You know, if if you're both enjoying it and and you're really enjoying it and not being coerced into it, you know. Right. And, and and honestly, I, I know people that are lifestyle, um, but it takes an enormous amount of strength. I don't see that, that submissive as weak. I see them as strong, as, as being able to know what they really want and, and, and engage in it regardless of what society says. It takes an enormous amount of strength. Yeah. Um, now, that said, on the other hand, I, I don't get too upset when people get upset because you know, I mean, two thirds of uh, a third of women have have suffered sexual assault, and one could easily see how this could can trigger certain people, or, sure. or, or how this can trigger or re-traumatize victims. Even you know, and and people could be disturbed at at this having the prevalency in society that it does. So I certainly. Uh, don't condemn people that have the opposing view, and I understand uh, where they might be coming from. I just, you know... Yeah, me, yeah, uh, me too. I, I want know, to I, listen and make them part of the conversation, but not allow it in, to be dictated entirely. True. <laughs> I guess well, and, is, is and just, you know, just for the sake of Fifty Shades of Grey, I read all three books, and I kept waiting for something really kinky to happen, and nothing really kinky ever did, you know. Oh, um, yeah, they're really boring. <laughs> the <laughs> well, Anne Rice I mean, books know, are... I mean, it was just... It are was much juicier and that. worse on consent by far, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Jason, um, I think that probably about wraps it up. Is there... Um, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for being so candid and, um, you know, not talking in these vague theories. I, I do appreciate well, that's my job. that. <laughs> so, um, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, you know, your website, where to get your book, or anything else you might want to share with listeners? Well, you know, tonight we talked about money and sex, two things that get seen as very unspiritual. And what I'd like to do to tie it together is to tell people these two things are not unspiritual. They they can be brought on the path and be made not just okay for spiritual people to engage in, but as part of of your spiritual work, both money and sex. Now, to get my book, uh, my books are available through any large uh, bookseller. I love it when people get them through independent, locally owned booksellers and especially occult stores. 
Um, uh, but if you can't, then they're available through Barnes and Noble. They're available. They're on the shelves. They're they're at um, you know they're all over Amazon. So you can order them pretty much anywhere. For my classes and and chat books and things like that go to strategicsorcery.net or just Google Strategic Sorcery and you'll find me. Uh, I'm always running courses and, and rituals and things like that that people can participate in. So so have you thought about writing a sexy novel using what you know about sex magic? I have not written any novel. Uh, I don't know if I'd write a, 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 a sexy novel, but it's worth it's worth considering, okay. you know. Um, I I might that might be uh, <laughs> might be interesting. There you go. That that might be where you'll really make your money. <laughs> I mean, look at Fifty Shades of Grey. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, there's a lot of imitators out there, so I wouldn't want to be one of those. I whenever I write something, I try to ask myself: Are other people doing this? Does it really need to be covered? Um, if so, why? Like, I have to have a real reason. Yeah, but, uh, you know, fiction is for fun. You know, fiction is um, escapism. So give us some Well, thought. Fifty Shades started as Twilight fan fiction. <laughs> well, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for your work, and thank you uh, for being a great guest tonight. And, uh, um, you know, keep in touch. Let me know when you have something new out there, and we'll talk about it. Will do. Thank you so much. Okie doke. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and uh, stay with me. Um, we're going to finish up that uh, article from uh, The Girl Guide, uh, you know, Money and the Elephant in the Room. Um, but first, uh, I owe Joe Carson uh, a commercial. Oops, that was the wrong one. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. So uh, that was a little snippet uh, by Joe Carson, and um, that's about her wonderful book and DVD called Dancing with Gaia. Um, it gets into um, connecting with nature. It gets into um, you know sexuality, um, connecting with these energies that um, you know our culture tells us to sort of just sweep beneath the rug. You know, it's it's looking at all of this uh, as sacred once again. It's a great little DVD and book. Uh, it's only twenty dollars. Uh, definitely. Take a look at it. Go to dancingwithgaia.com. Um, lots of different scholars who uh, talk to you about uh, these different aspects. And um, 
you know, it's it's very thorough. It's it's a must for your library, whether you're a newbie or you're someone who has been doing this for a while. You know, it's always great to hear someone else's approach, uh, you know, to connecting with these energies and, and the, these essences so that you, you know, you have a sense of uh, of interconnection with nature. You have a sense of, uh, of sex as sacred instead of taboo, you know, like our... Uh, our patriarchal, particularly uh, Abrahamic cultures that uh, dominate the world uh, due to uh, due to humanity. So um, give yourself the gift of uh, dancing with Gaia. Now um, I want to uh, go on to that uh, article that I promised I would do the the part two of. Uh, the article was by Trista Hendren from her Girl God blog titled Money and the Elephant in the Room. Uh, last week in part one, we discussed uh, the money of patriarchy uh, and how much of it is out there. Uh, and tonight we'll conclude the article about the lack of money uh, that we have to promote feminism and what alternatives we have. So that is where we pick it up. So as Trista writes, we have nowhere near the budget to promote feminism that patriarchy has to promote their ideas, which is a doctrine, uh, feminism, which is a doctrine that could uplift billions of people. I think that women are much better off lifting themselves and their children up than continuing to support patriarchal religions financially. And she quotes Monica Saju and uh, Barbara Moore from The Great Cosmic Mother, and here's uh, the quote, in today's world, thousands of children starve to death every day. Millions more suffer the kind of malnutrition that permanently damages the brain and the mind. The priests of the world's major patriarchal religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, do not consider the situation particularly moral, but they do not consider it abnormal either. The poor are always with us. Life is hell, etc. The situation just seems to illustrate these priesthoods' biophobic case. In their ontological world hatred and doctrinal nihilism, these holy men try to persuade us, and no doubt themselves, that suffering is the eternal and definitive human condition, and the daily starvation of children is just one more sad but inescapable example of our mortal condition, of fleshy sin and corruption, of samsara, the sorrow and impurity of the world, of life on the wheel, of Buddhist illusion. Male priesthoods of patriarchal religions, all of whom uh, life in the max, all of whom live life in the maximum comfort and even luxury that their cultures can afford, have been rationalizing the suffering of others for far too long. Throughout 4,000 years of, uh, of, of droning, no doubt they've come to believe their own words for want of hearing anything else, unquote. Trista goes on to say, no woman was more aware of these facts than Barbara Moore, who was homeless herself at times. My point is that I believe women need to radically reconsider every single dollar they spend. My hope is that feminists will begin to really think about money, as strange or foreign as it may feel to us. If we want our message to really spread and take root, we don't have another option. 
Last fall, it seemed likely that one of the few remaining feminist bookstores in the United States was going to have to close its doors. Several hours before their Kickstarter campaign was due to wrap up, I lamented about it on my Facebook wall. I was told by numerous people that I should basically just wish it weren't so. The fact is that women-owned businesses, writers and artists, need money to survive. No amount of wishing is going to change our fate as women. We have to wake up and take action before our women's sacred spaces and businesses are gone. We have to reallocate the often limited funds we have as women if we truly want to see change in women's lives globally. We have to take political action before we lose more of our goddess-given rights. As Roseanne Barr said, quote, The thing women have yet to learn is nobody gives you power, you just take it, unquote. Our systematic economic oppression underlies all other oppressions. We must begin to take an honest look, an honest and closer look, at how religion and money work together to oppress women. Sister Joan Chittister wrote, Quote, women have been locked out of full humanity and full participation in religious institutions and society at large. This marginalization of women masquerades as protecting them and even exalting them. Instead, these attitudes serve to deny the human race the fullness of female gifts and a female perspective on life. As a result, women make up two-thirds of the hungry of this world, and women are two-thirds of the illiterate of this world, and women are two-thirds of the poorest of the poor because they lack access to the resources and recognition men take for granted. That's not an accident. That's a policy, one supported by religious institutions that call such discriminations women's place and God's will, unquote. What a powerful statement and so true. So Trista goes on to say, Our homes mirror the patriarchal reality we learn in our churches, mosques, temples, and synagogues. Therefore, it's no surprise that when women are able to leave destructive relationships with abusive men, they are punished financially and there are few laws to protect them. We need to find a way to ensure that all women and children receive the child support payments they are entitled to. We have to find a way to make our cultures acknowledge value, and reward caregiving. Rianne Eisler has spent years of her life work studying just how to do this. If you only take one thing from this essay, read The Real Wealth of Nations by Rianne Eisler. We must demand that there is no more wage gap. According to a woman's nation pushes back from the brink, facts, and figures, Closing the wage gap between men and women would cut the poverty rate in half for working women and their families and would add nearly half a trillion dollars to the national economy. We must ensure that no woman anywhere in the world enters her crone years in poverty. These are the years where she should be reaping her years of knowledge and wisdom. The crone should be relaxing and reflecting on her glorious life, not slaving away at McDonald's worrying about how she's going to pay the rent. We cannot accomplish any of these goals if we do not understand how money functions and, most importantly, if we don't work together. Our individualistic lives are killing us. We need to fight back and hard. We can't change everything today, but we can find creative solutions to make our individual and collective lives easier. We can live communally, share resources, refuse to spend one penny on anything that does not empower us as females. 
Until we have economic equality, I urge you to consider how you spend your money. If you go out to eat, go to a woman-owned restaurant. If you buy a book or a CD or a piece of art, make sure it's been created by a woman. Every single place we spend our money has the potential to change our world. No one sums this up better than Arundhati Roy, who said, Our strategy should be not only to confront empire, but to lay siege to it, to deprive it of oxygen, to shame it, to mock it, with our art, our music, our literature, our stubbornness, our joy, our brilliance, our sheer relentlessness, and our ability to tell our own stories, stories that are different from the ones we're being brainwashed to believe, unquote. We can refuse to participate in our own economic subordination. If we work collectively, we can also reallocate the money that runs the world in a way that works for everyone. So if you want a copy of this article, and I would encourage you to get it, share it, read it often, uh, go to Trista's blog, uh, The Girl God, um, and look for the article uh, that she put on there March 19th called Money and the Elephant in the Living Room. And if you you will also find it on my Karen Tate Facebook page if you if you scroll down far enough, uh, it's definitely there. So I just want to remind you that this Saturday um, we have our wonderful Artemis ritual at the Goddess Temple of Orange County. And, uh, you know, I can't say enough good about the Goddess Temple of Orange County. If you are anywhere near uh, Southern California or Irvine, uh, you definitely want to visit. Uh, They are also going to have a museum and cultural center uh, as well as just the Goddess Temple. It's an incredibly beautiful space. They do... um, you know, uh, fourth Sundays uh, where men are invited so you can bring your families, uh, you can bring your, um, you know, your male beloveds with you on, the, on you know, for fourth Sunday services. They have uh, fun things on Friday nights for both genders. They have all women's space as well. Uh, I would look it up if you want to see some of the pictures of some of the great events that are there. I go there often. I teach classes, I do Sunday services, I'm going to be part of the Artemis ritual there this Saturday night, uh, go to goddesstempleoforangecounty.com and just uh, just take a look. You know, you might even want to become uh, a long-distance member. You know, just like you sign up to be a member of Greenpeace or maybe Emily's List or something like that, this is a way to support a woman's community, like Trista was just saying. For $25 a month, you know, maybe don't go to Starbucks so much. Maybe there's something else. You know, don't go to the movies. Get Netflix instead. Take the money you save doing Netflix instead of the movies. Send it to a worthy cause like the Goddess Temple of Orange County to help them continue to do their work of empowering women and making the world a better place. So uh, tonight um, I would like to close with two quotes, and um, then we'll have some closing music. The the first quote uh, is by Bill Moyers. Uh, He's an incredible guy. I loved when he did the interview uh, of Joseph Campbell which um, you can still find out there. It's so popular. Anyway, Bill Moyers, he's a a great guy who gets all of this stuff. Um, He said, The soul of democracy has been dying 
drowning in a rising tide of big money contributed by narrow, unrepresented elite. does seem like the topic has been a lot about money tonight. And uh, this other quote about Fox News, it describes Fox News. It says, Fox News is rich people paying other rich people to tell middle-class people to blame poor people. Yep, I have to say, I most definitely agree. So uh, tonight, our closing music, uh, in honor of Lane Redman and uh, our beloved goddess Artemis, who is was called the Queen Bee, and um, her ritual that we're performing Saturday night at the Goddess Temple, I'd like to close with uh, Lane's um, Bee Mantra song, um, and, uh, you know, Lane has passed away, and it was my great honor to memorialize her in the anthology uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And um, it was always my pleasure to have her on the show. She's been on several times. You can find her in the archives. And I appreciate that she always gifted uh, us with her music, which is perfect for Artemis, the Queen Bee, uh, because she's been trending on the show this month. And as Jean Shinoda Bolin said a few weeks ago, Artemis is the perfect archetype for women as they muster all their resources to be catalysts to change the world. So let me just uh, scroll down here and um, find that music and we'll uh, say goodnight with that. So just a couple seconds and here we go, getting close. Uh, B Mantra, Lane Redman. It's nine minutes, so if you'd like to hear it all, we have time to play it. Uh, so just sit back, enjoy yourself, and uh, I will be back with you next week. Thank you so much uh, for your loyal listening, and uh, remember, stay in touch. Good night, dear listeners.